Our scripture in this morning comes from Joshua, the 24th chapter, verses 1 through 28. Now, uh, we have been working on a series together called Strong and Courageous about the, um, about the book of Joshua. And this morning, we're going to wrap up the series by looking at Joshua's speech um, to all the tribes of Israel. See, Joshua is about to die. And he's gathered all the tribes of Israel at a place called Shechem. And there he is going to give them one last, one last piece of guidance before he leaves. And so uh, we pick up with them at Joshua, the 24th chapter, um, verses 1 through 28. And we're going to be looking at, at selective verses. Hear now the word of our Lord. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau. But Jacob and his family went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron and I afflicted the Egyptian by what I did there. And I brought you out. When I brought your people out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the wilderness for a long time. Then... You crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Higites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you. Also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil, and cities you did not build. And you live in them, and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now fear the Lord, and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And the people said to Joshua, We will serve the Lord our God and obey Him. On that, on that day Joshua made a covenant for the people, and there at Shechem he reaffirmed for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. 
See, he said to the people, this stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words the Lord has said to us. It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. Then Joshua dismissed the people, each to their own inheritance. This is the word of God. May it find its way into our hearts and lives this morning by the power of His Holy Spirit. Amen. Now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. <laughs> that line always gives me goosebumps. For my money, this is, this is one of the all-time great speeches, right up there with the, with the Gettysburg Address and I Have a Dream. Choose this day. It's a clarion call to the people of God to abandon their idols once and for all and follow the Lord. But it begs a question. Why was this speech necessary to begin with? Why do the Israelites still have idols to throw away? After all, these aren't metaphorical idols, right? These aren't things in their heart that come between them and God. We're talking about literal statues. Archaeologists have found them, little five-inch tall clay figures depicting various Canaanite deities. 400 have been found in Jerusalem alone, and they all date to long after the speech was given. So, why do they still have them? Why, after everything they've been through, Egypt, the wilderness, the battles, why are the Israelites still holding on to these idols? Shouldn't they have left them behind a long time ago? Why can't they just part with them once and for all? Nostalgia. That's why. The reason the Israelites hadn't parted uh, with their old idols, why they were still keeping them in their homes and on their mantles, is the same reason you and I have trouble parting with our old knickknacks. Nostalgia. The Israelites were quite fond of their little statues of the old gods. They reminded them of a simpler time. See, when we think of idols, we think of something from the past that's remote and forgotten. Something foreign and maybe even exotic that, that we have no real emotional attachment to. It's hard for us to imagine a time when worshiping without idols was a new and revolutionary idea. But for the Israelites, it was just that. This new way of worshiping was only a generation old. Of course, they had stories about Yahweh that were older than that, but, but it was only at Mount Sinai that they agreed to worship him exclusively and without the help 
of little statues. This was new, uncharted religious territory. Grandma and Grandpa had idols. These idols would have been handed down from generation to generation. They would have been precious family heirlooms. As hard as it is for us to imagine, idol worship was hard to part with because it was seen as a traditional form of worship. It was that old-time religion. It was good enough for mom and dad. It's good enough for me. See, the Israelites thought of the old pagan rituals the way we think of little white chapels on the prairie. Back then, you knew what the gods' names were, what their faces looked like, what each one of them controlled. The statues reminded Israelites of that time in the old country, before Egypt, before the wilderness. A simpler time. Some would argue a better time. When they were nomadic shepherds who lived off the land and did what they wanted and went where they pleased. But now, now they're in the promised land and now they're going to be city dwellers. They're going to pay taxes and raise crops. And they're going to have to negotiate with neighbors who speak strange languages. All of that is thanks to a radical new God who can't be seen. Can you imagine the nostalgic pull of the old gods? These little statues that remind the people of an easier, simpler way of being. Can you imagine the temptation to want to keep them around, pass them down to your kids? Imagine occasionally muttering the words of an old prayer that Granddad used to say to Baal as he walked past. Nowadays, we may not have a nostalgia for idols, but we sure have made an idol out of nostalgia. I would even go so far as to say that nostalgia is our culture's greatest idol and that each of us has spent time in its temple. We too are lured by the siren song of a simpler time. Some might argue a better time. Everywhere you look in our culture, you see signs of nostalgia. People flock to movies based on 80-year-old comic book characters or remakes of franchises from previous decades. People my age surround ourselves with things that remind us of our childhood. We buy little machines that play old video games the way our parents bought CD sets to play songs from the 60s and 70s. People of another generation find nostalgia in watching old westerns or going to car shows. Don't believe nostalgia is everywhere? Go to Mount Airy and spend the day. Eat a Cracker Barrel. Listen to the radio. Now, most of this is harmless, but there is a dark side to nostalgia. Too much looking backward can keep us from facing forward. Think about politics. I, I know we're all trying not to right now, but... but Follow me for just a second. See, it used to be conventional wisdom that the most forward-thinking candidate who provided the most optimistic view of the future would win. Think of Ronald Reagan's uh, Mourning in America or Barack Obama's Change You Can Believe In. It's about the future. 
Our last election was fought by two candidates appealing to nostalgia. One offered to make America great again. The other offered to restore the soul of America. Both promised to take us back to a time before things were so ugly and messy, though they had differing ideas about when that time was. Experts call this restoration politics. On dark corners of the internet, more extreme restoration movements are radicalizing people at alarming rates. Whether it's the promise of ISIS to restore the caliphate or the promise of white supremacists to restore unquestioned cultural dominance, both promise a return to a better time. And both have their root in a kind of despair about the present. They accompany a pessimistic, everything stinks, it's all going to hell in a handbasket mentality. Nostalgia is an idol. And like all idols, nostalgia has its appeal. It glitters in the light. It whispers promises we know that it can't fulfill. And yet, and yet we can't take our eyes away. The past just looks so much prettier than the present. And that's a problem. An old timer was telling his grandson about the good old days. He said, when I was a kid, my mom could send me to the store and I'd get a salami, two pints of milk, six oranges, two loaves of bread, a magazine, and some new blue jeans, all for a dollar. The boy said, really? All that for a dollar? And then the grandpa says sadly, yeah, but you can't do that anymore. They got those video cameras everywhere. It's a silly joke, but it does point to a serious truth. Nostalgia deceives us. Nostalgia always leaves out the important details. See, we look back and we see an idealized version of the past. Our memory selects all the good and leaves the complicating and ugly behind. We're left wanting to retreat to a place that never really existed. Nostalgia, in other words, is an illusion. Alcoholics Anonymous calls this romancing the drink. See, when an alcoholic first gets sober, they have no trouble remembering how terrible the cycle of addiction was how horrible they felt after their benders, the impact the drinking had on their friends and family, the ways it sabotaged their chances at success. All of that is enough to keep them from going back. But after a while, as they face new challenges and complexities, as, as a life being sober gets hard, they begin to look back more fondly on their time as an alcoholic. They remember the laughter in the bar, the sound of the ice clinking in the glass, how those drinks made them feel. All those bad memories fade and they're left with an idealized version of the past, a past that was simpler and easier. Then one day, they fall off the wagon. The danger for nostalgia is that it causes us to romance the drink. As a culture, we romance the past. We forget the genuine progress 
that we've made. We've made great strides towards racial and gender equality. More Americans are more free and more prosperous than ever before. Across the world, there are fewer wars, less disease, and less hunger and poverty than at any time in history. We are capable of things technologically that would have seemed like magic even a hundred years ago. But we romance the past. Nostalgia only gives us half the picture. See, no one dies of dysentery in Little House on the Prairie. There are no whites-only fountains on happy days. No one reminisces about AIDS on I Love the Aggies. As sure as the Israelites clung to their idols, we cling to an idealized past that never was. We let ourselves be deceived by an illusion. See, the reason the pull of nostalgia on us is so strong is not that things are so terrible. That's too easy, just to say everything stinks. The reason our culture is worshiping the cult of nostalgia is that we are in a moment of rapid change. And change, even good change, is threatening. To meet the challenges of a changing world, we have to stretch and grow. And that's hard. It's easier to pray to the gods of nostalgia. See, like the Israelites, we face a moment of unprecedented and changing upheaval. We face a shift in the way we work due to rapidly changing technology. Changing demographics and, and polarization are making our relationships more fraught and complicated. Increasing secularization is causing us to have to create a whole new vocabulary to talk about our values. All these changes aren't bad. Some of them are even good but they're all happening whether we like them or not. And unfortunately, our first instinct in the face of change is to retreat. We retreat into the comforting arms of nostalgia. This is most true in the church. These rapid changes present the church with a unique challenge to stretch and grow. You've heard the grim numbers, that ours is a shrinking and aging church but so was the Catholic Church on the eve of the Protestant Reformation. So was the Anglican Church on the eve of John Wesley's Methodist movement. So was the American Church on the eve of the Great Awakening. All these previous challenges called for men and women of faith to reimagine how church is done to meet their moment. Luther gave people access to the printed Bible in their own language, Wesley took church outside and preached where the people were. The great preachers of, of the awakening created the tent revival movement we know today. Our challenges will require something equally bold and daring of us. Unfortunately, the church's response to change is all too often to hope that if we ignore it, it will go away. It won't. We can cling stubbornly to the way things used to be. But the future is coming whether we face it or not. Now I realize all this change talk may be unwelcome on a Sunday morning. After all, this is where we come to escape from the changes going on around us. But that is the problem. 
the gods of nostalgia are a distraction. And as long as we are gazing longingly into an illusion of the past, the world will keep on changing without us. And the greatest irony for the church is that Jesus Christ was about the least nostalgic person who ever lived. Jesus had little patience for talk about the ancestors and how they did things. He was always pointing to the future. Jesus didn't come to bring about a restoration. He came to bring about a new creation. Jesus was not nostalgic. And it's not that nostalgia wasn't in vogue in the first century. It was. With the advent of the Roman Empire, the world was changing rapidly in Jesus' day. People were being connected by vast highways and being exposed to new ideas and new technologies. Resistance to this connected, multicultural world took the form of nostalgic restoration movements. The Pharisees called the people to live out the teachings of the Torah exactly in the same way their ancestors had done. Because Jews suddenly found themselves spread out across a vast empire and couldn't worship in the temple, they created local worship spaces in their own communities called synagogues. But the Sadducees wanted people to reject these new ways of worship and return to worshiping exclusively in the temple like they used to. The Zealots have more radical ideas. They wanted to see a restoration of the Davidic monarchy through violence and bloodshed. They wanted to go back to the time of King David. They hoped and prayed for a Messiah who would come drive out the Romans and put everything back the way it was. But restoration wasn't what Jesus had on offer. Whenever Jesus talked about the ancestors, he described them as being hard-hearted, murderers of the prophets. No, you don't want to go back and be like them. When Jesus was asked about worshiping in the temple, he was clear. Temple worship is in the past. Soon it will be a pile of rubble. He said a time is coming and has already come when true believers will worship not on this mountain or that mountain, but in spirit and in truth. Worshiping, uh, restoring the line of David, going back to all of that, forget it. Jesus came to inaugurate a new kingdom. Jesus was all about the new. He talked about new wine for new wineskins, a new covenant, a new command. He came not to restore the good old days, but to make all things new. Jesus is a God of radical departure. He calls for his disciples to say goodbye to their families, goodbye to their traditions, and goodbye to their way of life, and to put their shoulder to the plow and not look back. Jesus was anything but nostalgic. Hear the good news. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who was and is and is to come. Following Jesus means believing the kingdom that he is creating in our midst. It means being partners with him and creating that world because we believe that with Jesus, all things are possible. Change isn't to be feared. It's to be faced head on as servants of Jesus Christ. See, if Jesus is Lord, then he is Lord of our lives. 
We don't have to romance the drink of sin in our life because we're afraid of the challenges of living righteously. We can embrace the future with the hope of the one who knows that if anyone is alive in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. We don't need to listen to the sweet whisper of nostalgia that says it was better when you could do what you wanted. We are free to become who he has created us to be. If Jesus is Lord, then he is Lord of our church. We don't have to shrink away from the challenges of our current age and fear. We don't have to surrender to the mindset that there's nothing we can do. It's all going to hell in a handbasket and we might as well get comfortable and wait for Jesus to come. We can meet our moment with passion and conviction and begin the new chapter of the church's history. The story of how the Braggle Creek Circuit emerged from the pandemic with a fresh vision of how to be faithful in a new millennium. Because if Jesus is Lord, he is Lord of all. And we can face a changing world because we already know where he is leading us to. We know the change that our king is bringing about. We are praying thy kingdom come, thy will be done, not out of habit, but out of the firm conviction that Jesus will dwell with us. That, he will, that we will be his people and he will be our God that he will wipe every tear from our eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things that passed away. If Jesus is Lord, then there is no other. So choose this day whom you will serve. You can serve him or the gods of nostalgia who offer a distraction and a promise that can never be fulfilled. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There's a Caribbean story about an old man who comes to the end of his life. The man lived on a beautiful island his entire life, and he loved the island greatly. His ancestors had all lived there. He raised his children there in a house that his grandparents built. So before he was about to die, he asked his sons to take him outside so he could touch the soil of his homeland. Kneeling there in the dirt, he clutched tightly the earth of the place that had meant so much to him, and he died. Soon after, the man found himself in heaven, still clutching the soil in both hands as he waited to enter through the gates. Now when his turn came to enter, an angel stopped him and told him he had to let go of this soil. You can't bring anything into heaven with you, not even dirt. The old man was offended. Dirt? This isn't dirt. This, this is the soil of the most beautiful place on earth. If I can't bring it with me, I'll just stay out here. So the angel left sadly as the man wandered outside the gates. He, he wandered, holding this, the, the soil of his homeland, clutching in his hands for years upon years. Occasionally, the angel would do something to try and convince the old man to come in. He'd offer him food from the heavenly banquet or have him listen to the faint singing of the celestial choir. He would describe the house prepared for him and sighed. Each time, the old man would be tempted 
But each time when the angel told him that, that he had to let go of the soil, the old man would refuse. He would walk away sadly. Finally, after many years, the angel returned to the gate where the old man was clutching the soil. This time he brought someone with him. It was an old woman with a beautiful smile and silver hair. Who is this? The old man asked. The woman smiled. I was only a baby the last time you saw me. I am your great-granddaughter. If only you would come inside, I could introduce you to all the wonderful members of our family who have come since you left. The old man wept tears of joy to see his great-granddaughter fully grown. And without thinking, he dropped the dirt that he had been clinging to for years and ran up to her and wrapped her in a great big hug. And they entered into God's beautiful kingdom together. Brothers and sisters, the time has come for us to let go. The time has come for us to stop worshiping in the temple of nostalgia, praying to their gods for a restoration of a past that never really existed. It's time for us to face a bright future with courage. It's time for each of us once and for all to partner with Jesus in building this bright, beautiful new world. It's time. Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my household, we will serve Jesus Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who was and is and is to come, the Lord of all. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.